Wow, that was cool. This is going to be a total letdown now. <clears throat> Thanks for that, tech guys. Appreciate it. Uh, anyway, I should jump in. So, uh, my name is Josh, and I am the church planning resident here at the Summit Church. <clears throat> Excuse me. And uh, that means that you guys will be sending me out to plant a church, me and a group of other people, uh, Dwell Church over in the West Colfax neighborhood, and we're looking to launch in February. I am being super expedient today because Brian told me, hey man, uh, we're going to try and do these, this James series, a little bit shorter sermon, so you have 20 minutes. Oh, by the way, you have to do all the introduction to the book of James, and oh, by the way, I'm going to be on vacation or having a baby or something like that. So... Uh, I have a lot of stuff to do today, which means I've cut out all jokes, and this is just going to be all serious, and so we're jumping right in. I know a lot of you are disappointed because the only reason you get excited when you see me up here is for the jokes, but today it's actually about the Bible, okay? Normally it's about me and the jokes and how funny I am, but today, today only, it's about the Bible. Now I've wasted like two minutes in telling you that I don't have any time, so I'm really going to jump in. So um, I don't know if you guys can tell, but I work out um, pretty pretty regularly, mostly jazzercise. Is that a thing? That was a joke. All right. Um, so uh, I, <clears throat> I do work out, and it's funny because when you're a kid, you only work out, or when you're even like in high school, you only work out towards some purpose, right? So like when I was playing soccer, I actually joined the cross-country team to build up like more endurance so that I could run farther, run faster, that kind of thing. I know, like, football players are always, like, in the, in the locker room, like, pumping iron so they can, like, tackle people better. But then you, like, get older, and then you start working out just to, like, stay alive, right? <laughs> like, I don't want to get, like, obscenely huge and die earlier than I need to, and so I work out to sustain my life. It kind of feels like an end unto itself, as if I'm like just working out so that I can feel better on my next workout. You know, like I'm trying to build endurance so that the next workout isn't as painful as this one. I've never understood like bodybuilders because they spend all this time working out and getting huge and just massive, massive. And then the ones that like work a regular like office job, like can you bench press, press like 300 pounds so that you can type on a keyboard better? Like, is there any sort of transfer there? You know, I feel like those people should be out, like, building railroads and, like, ripping phone books apart or traveling around the country with a big blue ox chopping down trees or something like that. And, like, they should really leave the office work to people shaped more like me, you know? It's more my sort of, like, my niche. I feel like the working out, though, really can just end up being this sort of cyclical thing where you keep working out so that you can be better at working out. You build up endurance, and it's not really, like, towards some end. It's just towards, like, sustaining our life. I kind of feel like church can be that way sometimes, too. Sometimes it can be the cyclical thing where we, like, come to a Sunday morning gathering, and we uh, listen to a sermon, and we talk about Jesus, we praise Jesus, and then we get together through the week for city group, and we talk about Jesus, and we bond with other believers. But sometimes it can feel like that's kind of like not only the means, not only what we do, but that's also the end, right? Like, that's our goal. We want to do all of this church stuff so that we might be better church people. We want to go to all these church functions so that we might be a better church. But that was never the intention of the church, So what we're going to do today and what we're going to do through the next seven weeks is go through the book of James, one of the earliest books of the New Testament written to the church so that they might understand what exactly the end of the church is and and what sort of our goals are so that we're not just a community of faith, but we're also a community of mission. 
Just as a little introduction about James, he gives an introduction to himself in, verses, uh, in verse 1. He says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Now we see a couple of things there. First we see that James felt no need to sort of distinguish himself among other James, Jameses, right? So James just said, I am James, which means he's expecting his readers to know who he is. So James, the brother of Jesus, is most likely the author of this text. And that was sort of confirmed by early church fathers and by scholars today. And, and sort of the reasoning behind that is because all the other James that would have been writing a book like this would have had to designate themselves as like James the Lesser or James the son of Zebedee, who was one of the disciples. But this guy was actually the leader of the church in Jerusalem and the brother of Jesus. So when he wrote a book, he just said, I'm James, you guys should know who I am. He writes it out to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, and that could be just to... Uh, that could be to the like Jewish Christians out and across the world, or it could, be, it could be to sort of the Gentile and Jewish Christians throughout the world. By this point, people were beginning to think of themselves, even if they were Gentiles, as a continuation of Israel that God had blessed throughout the Old Testament and now was uh, bringing his like, full plan to fruition throughout the church in the New Testament. Um, <clears throat> it's interesting to note that he writes just to the 12 tribes, so if you think about other books of the New Testament, most of them are written directly to someone or some group, right? So you think about like Ephesians, that was written to the church at Ephesus. And so Paul wrote it knowing the sort of like problems and challenges and addressing some of the issues that were going down at Ephesus. And then other churches started passing it around because it's applicable to them too. If you think about the book of Luke and, or the books of Luke and Acts, they're both, both written to most excellent Theophilus. Luke was writing to this guy so that he might understand the gospel story, right? But James doesn't do that. So James is leader of the Jerusalem church, sort of leader of the center of the church at this time, and he decides, hey, I need to write an epistle, I need to write a letter to everyone. I need to let them know uh, the most important things about what it looks like to be the church through my experience that I found over the, few, of the past few years that I've been leading the Jerusalem church. And so what James is, what this book looks like, is almost like a collection of the sayings that James had. So sort of like if you listen to Brian preach for like 20 years and you just took out all the little like tweetable phrases that he sometimes has and collected them into one book, that would be sort of like the equivalent of what the book of James is. And he hits on what he believes is the most important things for the church to know so that they might be a, fa- a community of faith and of mission. He actually has three themes throughout the entire book and we're going to look through them today. They're actually the first three paragraphs So if you see there, he breaks it down. I have five paragraphs in 1 through 18 today, if you don't count the introduction. And so 1, 2, and 3, he actually hits on the three themes that he's going to hit on consistently through this entire book. That was kind of like an ancient way of writing where you sort of like lay out, this is what we're talking about. I guess we still sort of do that. But um, the three paragraphs sort of hit on these three themes. The three themes are as follows. First is testing. James talks a lot about testing and trials and how the Christian ought to react to that. The second is wisdom. James talks a lot about what it means to be wise, how to gain wisdom, how we should seek wisdom. And finally, he talks about wealth. He talks about the Christian's relationship to wealth and poverty. Now, it's interesting. I think a lot of times we try and pretend when we're talking about spiritual matters that something so base and human as wealth and money should not even be concerned with. And yet, in this book where James is disseminating the information that he finds most important for the church, he spends a significant amount of time talking about wealth. 
<clears throat> I'm sorry, my voice is falling out. I don't know what's happening. Anyway, it's probably because I'm going so freaking fast. I'm like barely holding on myself right now. It probably doesn't feel fast to you guys because I'm from Georgia, and so I know that I talk slower, but it feels fast to me. Um, anyway, so testing wisdom and wealth, these are three themes that are going to be throughout the entire book of James. He is painting a holistic picture of what it means to live as a Christian, to live on faith and mission. Today, what we're doing specifically as he starts out this book, as, uh, as Drew said, the book of James is very practical. He lists out some very specific things that you can do. And so the way that he starts it out is based off of this very simple premise, that if you can change the way that you think, you can change the way that you act. Change the way that you think, then you can change the way that you act. Okay, so he's going to hit on some more actions later, but primarily what we're dealing with today in the introduction is he's laying out some like thought framework to be able to change the way in which we act as believers. So that this, what we're doing right now, this gathering together around God's word, does not become an end to itself, but it actually propels us to go out and change how we act, and in so doing, change the world. Okay, so that's my introduction, and that was about like two-thirds of my time, so I should probably jump into the text now. Let's look at uh, verse 2. First, James encourages us to choose joy. He says in verse 2, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing." That word steadfastness, we're going to skip the little first part at the beginning and then we're going to come back to that. But that word steadfastness could be easily translated as endurance. And so he's saying that trials, when you face them, they actually build up endurance for your faith. It's sort of like working out. The more that you run, the further that you can run. The more that you bench press, the more that you will be able to bench press in the future. And this makes good sense to us, right? So if you have a trial and you have faith that God's going to take you through it, then he does, aren't you going to have faith for the next trial? It's sort of like this experience builds up an endurance for your faith so that you're more readily able and willing to put your faith in God because of what he has done for you in the past. And the more and more that we do that, the more and more that we approach this picture that he paints of perfection and completion, lacking in nothing, the full effect of this steadfastness. And finally, one day when Jesus comes back and he recreates the entire world, like when he creates the new heaven and the new earth, in that time, our faith will come to full completeness because we won't have to sort of believe and trust in God. Our faith will actually be sight. God will be right there with us and we'll be leaning on him. That's sort of like the end goal. We want to get more and more endurance, more and more steadfastness to our faith so that we might approach more and more and more what it'll be like in the end of time when Jesus brings us home, right? All that makes sense. And I think it's super encouraging. But the first line is the talk of crazy people. I mean, I really just don't understand that. Count it pure joy, my brother, or count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Like, what does that even mean? How do you recognize a trial as pure, or how do you get the emotion of pure joy when facing a trial? Have you ever seen somebody react with an emotion that seems like inappropriate to the situation? It's strange, right? Like, imagine if you're sitting at work and uh, the guy in the desk next to you, like, the boss comes to him and he's like, Hey, Bill, we're going to have to let you go. I'm sorry. Uh, your work here is inadequate, and so we're going to fire you. Like, what if he reacted with just, like, joy? He's like, ha, 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 that's great, cool. I didn't want to be here anyway. I'm surprised that you guys let me stay here as long as you did. This is so great for me. Thank you so much for this opportunity to be fired. Ha, 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 see you guys later. Well, I probably won't because I'm fired now. Ha, 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 and then he walked away. Like, you would think 
he's going to come back and murder you, right? Because this is a crazy person. That's a crazy thing to do to react to a trial with complete and content joy. The reason is, is because we view emotions as reaction to stimuli. So just like when you stub your toe, it hurts, and you say, ow. When your girlfriend breaks up with you, you feel sad, right? Emotions are just sort of like these very natural reactions to stimuli. So something happens, maybe somebody punches you in the face, your reaction, your emotional reaction, your natural reaction is to then be angry, right? And that's how we view emotions to work. But my question is, is that the case? Is that truly the case? So I listened to this podcast called uh, Invisibilia, and uh, it's really solid if you've never checked it out. And uh, they sort of posited this question, uh, are, motion, are emotions natural reactions? In fact, they, they had this quote, they said, emotions aren't reactions to the world, emotions construct the world. They use this analogy of the eyeball. So if you think about your eye and how you see, now I'm not a sciencey guy at all, so I'm going to explain this as best as I can, but basically your eye perceives patterns of light. So I'm looking at this chair right now, but what I'm really seeing are actually patterns of light like little blobs, and then my eye takes in that information, and my brain has this thing called a concept that it puts to that chair. Right? So I know this is a chair because it fits the pattern of light that my brain has seen through regular practice of what a chair looks like. It's a concept of what a chair is, and then my brain perceives that that is a chair. So uh, there's this lady on there who is a, a sort of neurologist person. She was saying that emotions actually work in a pretty similar way. We have concepts that tell us how we ought to feel. So instead of it being like stimuli, something happens, and we have immediate... Uh, uncontrollable reaction that is emotion. In fact, there's a middle step in there where stimuli happens, something happens, and then we have a concept that tells us how we ought to feel, and then we feel that emotion. Now, these concepts are sort of put into us really at a young age, right? We see another kid kind of freaking out because someone took their toy, and our parent says, oh, uh, Johnny is just mad because of X, Y, Z. That builds in a concept in our brain to where now we say when X, Y, Z happens, people get mad. Or maybe even like we get picked on by a bully and we go tell the teacher and we're like crying and stuff and the teacher says, it's okay to be sad. In that moment, we're building in this sort of like understanding of what it means to have sadness. And so we say, now whenever a bully picks on me again, I will be sad. We build in these concepts in our brain, and they become completely subconscious, right? Nobody is like sitting there looking at this, this uh, stimuli, something that happens, and is like, how should I feel? No, they feel very natural to us because they're subconscious, and they happen instantaneously. And so my thought is, and maybe James's thought at the same time, is that if we are able to change these concepts, if we are able to alter the way that our brain reacts to these stimuli, we can actually change the way that we emotionally react to these situations. And so now, when we better understand trials, when we understand them as making us more uh, steadfast in our faith, when they bring us closer to completion, if we change that concept to say that is something that we should be joyful about, now we can react to trials with joy. Now, there's, there's two disclaimers on this. The first is that I have not achieved this. I wish I could get up here and say, like, and this is how it has worked out in my life. No, I, it hasn't, and it's tough. It's really challenging to look at a trial and to feel joyful. 
The second disclaimer, and maybe this is more important because I don't want anyone to walk away uh, confused or heading in the wrong direction today, is that you can't just like will your emotions into submission. You know, like there's a, there's a good possibility that there are many of you in this room right now that are facing trials. Maybe you're facing the death of a loved one. Uh, maybe you're facing a relationship breakdown. Maybe you're just facing challenges at work. And you can't just sort of flip a switch and be like, okay, feel joyful. You know, like this text said I should feel joyful, so whoop, I'm going to do it. No, that, uh, that could lead to some real sort of like emotional stifling and repression and stuff like that. And that's not a road that we want to go down. So uh, that's not exactly how it works. But I believe that this considering pure joy in the face of trials and reformatting of our minds to see these concepts where we sort of are able to see trials as an opportunity to see joy, I believe that it's possible. And it's possible through the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit working in our lives, reformatting our brains. It's possible through understanding ourselves and who we are in light of the plan that God has for us sort of rooting our identity in the future victory that God has for us, not the current trial, rooting ourselves and our emotions in the future benefit of this trial, not in its current difficulty. I believe that through that process and through the slow process of sanctification that God can actually reformat our brains to be better able to face trials with joy. It's a long process. It's not easy. But I believe that through this text, we are seeing that God has made it possible for each and every one of us. And the community of faith and mission, the community that changes how it thinks so that it can change how it acts, will begin to more and more be able to see trials with the emotion of joy and not the emotion of pain. So how do we begin to do this? And I think, I think the way that we do that is through wisdom, which is actually sort of our next point. Wisdom is there for the asking, Wisdom is there for the asking. We see this in verses 5 through 8. It says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. I feel like the amount of time that the Bible spends talking about wisdom and the amount of time I spend thinking about trying to gain wisdom are vastly different, right? Most of my prayers are centered around asking God to fix a certain problem or to just heal something in me or whatever. And yet the Bible consistently from beginning to end is encouraging us that we ought to be seeking wisdom from the Lord. And what's astounding too from this text is that God wants to give it to us. He says when, when we ask in faith, he actually gives us. When we believe that God wants to give us wisdom, he actually gives us that wisdom, we think about it completely backwards, though. We have this like, false perception of God that he's up there withholding wisdom from us. Like He doesn't want us to have this wisdom. I think like back when I was like, choosing where to go to college, it's almost like, and I didn't think this through, but I was, I was like, God, why aren't you telling me where to go? I was, like, had this picture of God that he's just up there like, looking down at me like, ha, 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 Josh doesn't know where to call it. go to college. Josh doesn't know where to college. I did college, I promise, all right? So... Uh, Josh doesn't know where to college. Isn't that so dumb of him? Ha, ha, ha. He'll never figure it out. Let's see what he does. One of the angels is like, let's go tell him. He's like, no, 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 no. Let's see what he does. Let's see what he does. So they're like watching me up there. He's like, oh, he chose that school. That is so dumb. That is going to end up very badly for his life. No, God doesn't want that. God doesn't want that for any of us. God wants to show us the good plan that he has for our life. In fact, God wants good for our life even more than we do. 
God is more zealous over the path of our lives even than we are. And so if he has a path for our lives, would he not be the good God to tell us what it is? If we just humbly, submissively, and in faith ask him for that? Wisdom is there for the asking. God is ready, willing, and able to give you the wisdom that you're seeking. The third theme that James introduces is money. And money is not equal to worth. This is the thought framework that he wants to lay down so that he can talk about money throughout the rest of this book. Money does not equal worth. He says in verse 9, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation because like the flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuit. Here James sort of further introduces this theme that is throughout the whole book that is uh, future exaltation, right? So thinking sort of eschatologically. I spent like about 20 minutes working on pronouncing that word so that you guys would be really impressed by me right now. But basically, it's just this thought of like focusing on the long term, on the end goal. Focusing on the day in which Jesus is going to come back and recreate the entire world and set everything to rights. And so James introduces that theme here when he says, let the lowly brother, so first of all, brother is a term that they would use for Christians, and so this is sort of signifying that this man who is poor, let the lowly brother uh, boast in his exaltation. And that exaltation word is sort of like, let him boast in his future reward. One day when God exalts us all and we get to live in eternity with him, let the lowly brother boast in that, not in his current situation. All too often, we're hung up on our like, current situations, but being able, like, reveling in that as opposed to the good stuff that God has for us is sort of like sitting at the Thanksgiving table, right? And you know that the, you know, like your mom and your grandmother are like, bringing out all this like, delicious food, and you're sitting there, and you're waiting on it, like, complaining about being hungry in that moment when the food is being brought to the table is really dumb, Right? It's really kind of selfish. It's really just saying, oh, man, I'm so hungry. And yet, like two minutes from now, you're going to have more to eat than you ever possibly could. That's what it's like to sort of find our worth, find our identity in our poverty here on earth because God has promised a great and grand exaltation for us. Similarly, he talks about the person who is wealthy. He says that uh, the wealthy person should boast in his humiliation because it's silly It's even humiliating to boast in all of these things that, just as James said, are going to fade away, right? Like the grass of the field, these things are just going to burn up. It doesn't really matter how much, like, earthly wealth that you have right now because it pales in comparison to the satisfaction and the good things that God has for you in the life to come. It's kind of like having, like, a, a Honda Civic and, like, revving your engine next to a Corvette, and trying to like feel like you're impressive. like That is like earthly wealth compared to heavenly wealth. It just kind of like pales in comparison. It's almost silly, right? And so to find a lot of your identity, to find a lot of your uh, personhood and your worth and your value in your wealth is silly considering the wealth that is coming along to us. I think the implication is For those of us who may consider ourselves poor in this room, who feel like they have trouble finding ways to make ends meet, who are having trouble just sort of getting by, that is not your identity, that is not your worth, that is not your self-value. No, your self-value is in your exaltation. Boast, find your identity, find pride even in your future exaltation. 
Similarly to those of us who are wealthy in this room, and honestly, that's probably most of us just by the virtue of the fact that we live in one of the wealthier cities of America, and we live in America, which is one of the wealthier countries of the world, we have to constantly, con- or constantly sort of coach ourselves to not make our identity that wealth, to not make our identity that comfort that comes from that wealth, to not make our identity that lifestyle, but rather to make our identity our future reward, to have our identities rooted in our future victory, not in our current circumstance. Our self-worth should be defined by our future status, not our current status. So those are the first three themes that James hits, testing, wisdom, and wealth. And then he sort of comes back to the testing element and, and in a way sort of ties them all together in these last two paragraphs. So in verse 12 it says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Now, it's interesting right there in that small verse we see, he's sort of hearkening back to saying, steadfast under trial. And you'll notice that that's not a conditional statement. It doesn't say if he is steadfast under his trial, then he will receive the crown of life that's promised to those who love him. No, it says when he is, he will receive it. And so it's sort of like saying, when these trials that we face throughout our life are over, then we will receive the crown of life that God has promised to us. It's just very important to recognize that your faith, in fact, the crown of life that is promised to you if you're a follower of Christ today, is not at all contingent on you staying steadfast on the trial. That is, that is actually going to come to fruition. God is going to give you your eternal reward. Uh, but it'll be after this time of trials. Verse 13, he says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Now this is an important theological note that James is making here, and I feel like he was addressing a misconception. And it's a misconception that is still very much alive today, that God tempts people, right? I feel like you see it in movies all the time, you know, like some like hot girl will walk in and the guy will be like, God, why are you tempting me, right? Like this happens a lot. And we sort of have this perception that God is out there tempting us. Now we do see in the Old Testament that God frequently tests people, Right, So he tested Abraham when he brought his son Isaac to be sacrificed. He says in Judges verses 2, 22, uh, that actually the judges were there to test Israel to see whether or not they might follow God. But there's a crucial difference in testing and tempting. So testing is sort of setting up an opportunity for someone to succeed. Now, I know if you're thinking back to your school days or if you're in school right now, it doesn't really feel like tests are an opportunity for you to succeed. But basically, they're an opportunity to show what you know, to show that you can succeed, and hopefully you can do that. But tempting is setting up an opportunity for someone to fail. Tempting is like setting up this place where somebody can come, and you're like hoping that they will, in fact, fail in that. And God does not do that. He is not out there looking for us to fail. He is setting up opportunities so that even when we're being tested, sometimes that's an opportunity for us just to succeed. And then, as we know from verse 1, when we succeed, that builds in steadfastness and endurance to our faith so that we might be more and more complete in who he is. Then, uh, going on in verse 14, it says, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, gives birth to death, or brings forth death. So temptations actually begin with our own desires. They do not come from God, but they come from our desires in ourselves. James sets up this pattern here that he's going to sort of come back to later, but he says, desire, when conceived, gives birth to sin, which brings forth death. 
So desire leads to sin, which leads to death. And we understand how this works, right? So desire, like for instance, if you have like a desire for sex, that can lead you to adultery, which then can lead you to sort of like, as Paul says, the wages of sin being death, right? We know the cost of sin. God says that our sin separates us from him and who he is, and so Jesus Christ has to pay the price for that. You know, if you have a desire for money, this can lead to greed. If you have a desire for power, this can lead to manipulation. These desires that we have innately within us can lead to sin. And that sin, in turn, then leads ultimately to death. But James doesn't finish there. He doesn't stop there by setting up this former pattern. He goes on in verse 16. He says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good, and perf- every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Now, it's really fascinating there. It says, uh, He brought us forth. And that's kind of like a uh, metaphor for giving birth. So they would say, like, a baby has been brought forth. And it's really interesting when you parallel that language because previously in the last passage, we saw that when desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. What James is doing is setting up a parallel here, and we're actually going to throw it up on the screen, but basically, desire leads to sin, which leads to death, but the the new parallel, the parallel that we have in Jesus Christ, is that his will, the will of God, through his word, leads to us being new creations. So God's will, through his word, leads us to being new creations, It's interesting when you think about it because the ends of those things are vastly different, right? Being like new creations, first fruits of creation versus death, they're like much completely different end places. And yet, the starting places seem like a sort of choice that we have to make. They're a little bit closer together. At any given moment, we can choose between following our own desires or following the will of God. And it's his will ultimately that leads to new creation and our desires which lead ultimately to death. It's interesting, too, to think of the fact that uh, our desires and our efforts and what we want to do lead to death, and yet what God does, completely separate from us, completely outside of any work that we can do, completely outside of any good thoughts or ideas or hopes that we might have, completely outside of any of our efforts, it is His will that, in fact, leads us to being new creations. And we know of his will through his word so that we might be these new creations. Now, what does it mean to call us first fruits of his creatures? Well, if you think about God's creatures and first fruits, you may think like he's talking about Adam and Eve here, right? Like they're the first ones of humanity, the first ones of his creation, but they have already been created. So that can't be it. So I think what James is speaking about here is actually the recreation of the world that God's going to bring about when Jesus comes back again. And he's saying of that recreation, we are first fruits. Now, let me lay some groundwork here. So uh, if you think about like uh, the recreation of the world, when God sets everything to right, it means there'll be no more crying, no more pain, no more sin, no more death. Now think about yourself. Think about the way in which you make your decisions. Think about your life. If you're a person like me, then you probably have some sin in you. You probably have even caused people to have pain and tears And none of that stuff is going to be in heaven, right? None of that stuff is going to be when God recreates the heaven and the earth. Now, how does that work out? How then are we supposed to be the people who populate heaven if we have all this junk inside of us? 
Well, it's right here in the text that throughout this whole thing, we've been seeing the way in which God changes us. Even from the beginning, we saw that that steadfastness through trials begins to make us more and more complete, more and more perfect. Basically, God is making us into the people that we will need to be to live in his renewed creation. We are the first fruits of his creatures because we are the first ones that he's working on to prep for his new creation. That's why when we accept Jesus and we get saved, we're not just sort of like immediately taken up to heaven because he's doing this work in us. He's working to sanctify us and to make us more and more into the citizens that we'll need to be to, be, to live in his new kingdom. It's interesting to me that in creating this new kingdom and renewing the world, he doesn't start with like fixing earthquakes. He doesn't start with like curing cancer. No, he starts in the hearts and minds and souls of individual believers. Because of his will and through his word, making us more and more into the first fruits of his creatures, to make us more and more into the first citizens of his renewed kingdom. Transforming the world actually begins by transforming believers. And that's exactly what James tries to set out here, that when our minds are changed and the way that we think about the world is changed, we actually become more and more the people of faith and mission that God wants us to be. In fact, if you apply this formula, this formula of his will, his word leading to new creation, back to the three sort of things that James introduced, you can see it throughout. God's will is that we might face trials. And through his word, we might find the pieces to give us faith so that it might produce steadfastness, so that we might be more perfect, more complete, lacking in nothing, so that we might start to look more and more like those first fruits of creation that we're supposed to be. If you look back at wisdom, it is God's will that we might have wisdom. And through his word, he has revealed to us that wisdom so that we might apply it to our lives and become first fruits of this new creation that he wants us to be. If you look at wealth, it is his will and revealed to us through his word that we might think about wealth as if we are the first fruits of the new creation that he wants us to be. And so that would change how we process and understand what our wealth is here on earth. Finally, we see this through the gospel story. It is his will that Jesus Christ would come down to earth, that he would die a sinless death on the cross, and that 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 story, that death for you, that death for me, that payment of our sins that we didn't deserve, that destruction of sin, death, and hell, might be revealed to us through his word, through the word of God, so that through that it might transform our lives, and then we start to look more and more like first fruits of his creation. So throughout this series, I'm going to encourage you the same way that I encourage myself, that I am going to work so hard to try and soak up as much of what James is telling me so that it might change the way that I think and even change the way that I act so that I might be able to look more and more like the first fruits of the creation that God has for us. And I believe that when we as a body of believers are changed in that way, when we start to look, think, and act more like the first fruits of God's new creation, that it won't just change how we act in here, it'll change how we act out there, and it'll even begin to change the world around us. Would you guys pray with me? Dear God, we thank you so much just for your will, God. God, we thank you that it is your will and not our desire that leads to life for us. 
God, we thank you that it is your will that is recreating us through your word, God. And I pray that you would begin making us a community of faith and mission so that we might live out our lives as a small taste, a small example to the rest of the world of the citizens of the new creation that you want us to be, God. Let us become more and more like the first fruits of this creation that you have for us, God. Let us become more and more into the people that you want us to be through your word and ultimately because of your will, God. God, we love you and thank you for loving us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.